Welcome to Inspiring Women with Lori McGraw. I am your host, Lori McGraw. I have spent the past 30 years in leadership, and over the years, I've come to learn one thing. Women need women, and not just any women, but inspiring women. Tune in every week to hear from women at the pinnacle of their careers and from others who are just starting out. Episodes can be found at inspiringwomen.show or subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening, and I hope you will be inspired. Welcome to this episode of Inspiring Women, and I am so excited today to be speaking with Dr. Bridget Duffy. Dr. Duffy is the Chief Medical Officer for Vocera, which is a company focused on clinical workflows and communication. Prior to that, she founded and was the CEO of Experia Health, which was a company that worked on clinical workflows and communication, which she then sold to Vasera. Now, Dr. Duffy is an early pioneer in the creation of hospitalist medicine. She launched programs to accelerate the clinical discovery in the field of integrative and heart-brain medicine. She was the country's first chief experience officer, which was something in healthcare she did at Cleveland Clinic. She is very, very prominent. She has many awards, many publications. She is a sought after speaker. She had attended medical school at the University of Minnesota. She's on several different boards, including co-founding the National Task Force for Humanity in Healthcare. And Dr. Duffy, I am so pleased to be speaking with you today. Great to be here with you, Laurie. Well, great. Let's get started in this conversation. So Bridget, you have done so much already in your career and you, you already said that like, I don't think I've, I'm, I've made it, but I think you've really made it. Let's start with what are you doing right now? What do you do at Vocera um, in your current profession? Well, first, thank you for doing this and creating a community virtually for women. I think I didn't realize how much I needed it uh, until the pandemic. So just thank you for creating the connection. What I'm focused on right now in my role at Vocera is that during this pandemic and early on, I just woke up every day with this almost panic and sense of urgency to do something more to protect my colleagues in the front lines, and in particular women. I think women have been hit disproportionately through this pandemic and the various roles that they've had, uh, frontline in healthcare, frontline as mothers, chief medical officers of their homes, uh, navigating you know, their families' lives and communities. So I also have never seen in my career as a physician fear in the eyes of my colleagues, fear going into work that not only might they get sick, but also they couldn't go home and infect their family. So I pulled together a little team at Vocera and we got together and we said, what's our responsibility as a company and what could we do more of to protect the frontline healthcare workers? So really quickly, we pulled together a group of 10 CEOs across the country. I just picked up the phone and called a few colleagues and former friends from the Cleveland Clinic and where I'd worked previously and said, what if we could get 10 influential CEOs together and define for the nation the standards of safety for people in healthcare today in the front lines? And could we have psychological and emotional safety be as important as physical safety? So long story short, we worked very quickly. These 10 CEOs within two seconds said, I'm in. We drafted a declaration of safety, which landed around three pillars, a pillar around physical safety, workplace violence, which existed before the pandemic, but is worse. 
a pillar around making psychological and emotional safety as important as physical safety. And third, uh, and uh, most powerful was all of the CEOs said, you cannot be safe unless you're free from racial injustice or bias. So we have a health justice pillar. So that's what I'm working on now. Our dream is, they, the 10 have signed it. Our dream is to have a hundred more CEOs sign it and that we are in the White House having it formally signed uh, with President Biden and that this group becomes trusted advisors to this administration to help us navigate our nation's healthcare system to get through this pandemic and thrive on the other side of it. Well, that is um, really exciting. I want to talk a bit more about that, but you started that with a sense of urgency. And I agree with you. This pandemic has so many different things in terms of impact to humanity, in particular women who have been impacted differently, more communities of color, different, more in negative ways. And so taking urgent action and having the energy for it is incredible. So that's really wonderful. I love the safety pillar. Um, I think that that is a, a really important one. And you're right. These, these issues certainly existed well before this pandemic, but they've really come to the forefront. So as we talk about that, maybe Bridget, you can walk us through a little bit of how you got here because you're in um, the chief medical officer role now. You were the, the country's first chief experience officer in healthcare. You've founded companies, you've led companies. Give us a little bit of the career journey so we understand sort of, you know, where you're coming from, where you are today. Absolutely. Well, I think it was really influenced by my parents who always did work around giving voice to those that had no voice and uh, looking out for those that had less. So my, you know, always have been, my father was in healthcare. And so, but my path has really been non-traditional from the get-go. Um, when I finished medical school and then was finishing my residency in internal medicine at the University of Minnesota at Abbott Northwestern, um, I read a paper written by a gentleman who, and the title was how to build the most healing hospital in America. And I just cold called him. And little did I know that he was the inventor, the pacemaker, the founder of a little company called Medtronic. And he answered the phone and we chatted and he, he had a dream to truly humanize the way care was delivered. And he and I were on a 25 plus year journey until his death a couple of years ago at the age of 96. So I think that I have always um, not had really a tolerance for the status quo in healthcare and, and would witness the brokenness and the inequities with those that had less. And that mentors gave me the courage to chart a path that others may not have taken. Um, and I've always seemed to write my own job description and create my own title, which helps because I don't really fit in a nine to five job. You know, the reporter was doing an interview years ago on why some physicians had left medicine. And I said, I don't feel like I've left. I've just moved to a different platform to try to make it better for those that are in the trenches. Those non-traditional career moves that you made, I mean, it, that's that's interesting that you have made them. It's, I think, even more interesting that you made them as a woman. I mean, entrepreneur is a word that's used to describe a bit of your career, but that is a, that's sort of like a today word. It's not the history, you know, of when you've done entrepreneurial um, things in your career. Was it different being a woman? Did you notice it as a difference or was it just the path that you followed? Oh, very much so. I think I left many times or pivoted um, because of pain and in the current role or inability to excel or move within up within the organization. 
you know, in hindsight, I look back and I think I often spent two to three years too long in, in, in a position. And so it's almost like the pain of not being able to use all my gifts forced me to move in a different direction and sometimes not as willingly as I would have liked to, you know, I think there's, you know, comfort in staying and not making change happen. So even though it maybe looks good on paper or to other women hearing this, it's, it's not without pain and not without risks. But I think where I always listen to my gut, uh, my mentor Earl Bach and the founder of Medtronic sent me a book early in my career, Trust Your Gut. When I've listened to my gut, that's when I've had the ability and the power to sort of move to the next thing and then to find the people in the trenches that help me succeed. And having sort of like discomfort in a current position, this is sort of familiar for many people in their careers in terms of not being fully satisfied in what they're currently doing. But when you made those decisions to move to the next thing that included risk-taking, were there people alongside you that helped pull you? Did you have mentors that were the key people that gave you the, whether it's courage or something else that made those moves, gives us a sense for that because I think that's really helpful for other women to sort of hear who are also grappling with those kinds of career pivot kinds of decisions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I think what I did was I looked for people that inspired me or companies that inspired me and I actually cold called them. And I think I got this from my father, who's probably as crazy as I, but you know, I, I would read something that somebody wrote and say, oh my goodness, this person moves me or I love what that person's doing in this company. And then I would call them and say, you know, tell me more about this. How did you make the move? So I think I had people that inspired me to make the move. I will say I had very few women that actually early in my career looked out or helped me. There were a few men, you know, there were very few women in healthcare and boardrooms that I was in or leadership rooms. I was often the only female and that was frightening, but there were a couple of male mentors that looked out for me and, and one a female mentor at Medtronic, Barbara Kind, who took a risk and created a team whose mission was to humanize the way we deliver medical technology. And so I think there were individual people that gave me the courage to take the risk. And, and that's the power of what you're creating here with this community of women, which I just so happy to, to know of you. Well, you're, you're part of it now. And so, you know, I also, I mean, I like the, I like this cold calling tactic that you use. That's not something that I think that people um, think of. And I also, you know, necessarily, and I also think quite frankly, a generalization, but I think women are, um, need to network more and, you know, you actually have to take action and sounds like some of those actions that you took with those cold calls, um, were really helpful. So that is terrific advice. And I appreciate that. I want to ask you about, um, you know, some things that I've heard you talk about. I've read in some of your articles, Harvard Business Review and others, humanity in healthcare, human-centered culture in healthcare, What are you talking about there? Why is that so important? Well, before the pandemic, you know, I witnessed as many others like Chris Sinsky at AMA and my colleague Liz Bohm and Dr. Maples, who I work with on the Task Force for Humanity, is that I just witnessed myself and my colleagues becoming more and more exhausted and and losing the joy for why we entered the profession. And, and it wasn't about the brokenness of people, it was the brokenness of the system and antiquated technologies. And I watched what the electronic medical record did to my colleagues and to the sacred interaction that I would have with a patient. 
And my reason for, for, for living and for being in this profession is to ease the suffering of others. And when I found myself spending, you know, 10 hours of a 12 hour day on a computer and doing other things versus looking into the eyes of my patient, I thought there's something wrong here. So this was recognized before the pandemic and in the levels of cognitive overload that nurses suffer in the front lines, just from alarm fatigue alerts, you know, typing in the record. Many of us across the country realized we had to do something different and to redesign a system that brought in technologies that ease the burden of being a doctor or a nurse versus added to it. Um, but that major part of being able to improve the environment was around leadership and creating and, and identifying and mentoring the next gener generation of leaders that believed in a human-centered approach, that everyone was treated equal on the team, that the housekeeper and food service were an equal and valued member of the team. And so my, my team and I, led by Liz Bohm, created a framework for human-centered leadership design that many institutions across the country are adopting today. But now with the pandemic, post-COVID PTSD is real. It will cripple our nation's healthcare workforce. We will have people leaving the field in droves if we don't do something now. So there's nothing good about the pandemic, but the only good thing here is that I hope it will catalyze our, our nation's leaders to move faster to fix the things that we knew were broken before the pandemic. And these problems are very large. And I also agree with you that the urgency, you know, created by the pandemic in terms of exposing how important these issues are, it's there perhaps accelerating. Are you optimistic that we'll be able to make progress? And if so, why are you optimistic? I actually am. I mean, working with this CEO coalition and this group of leaders, which is vastly quickly growing to create this viral community of leaders who care about this. As a couple of them said, there can be no competition on innovation around humanity. And to have Tommy Mahalovic from Cleveland Clinic say, I'm collaborating with people that were institutions that were formerly competitors, that we're all working together to try to fix these things, that they all care about, as Rod Hockman at Providence said, the soul of the provider matters and that emotional and psychological safety is important, that we're working to destigmatize the issues around cognitive overload and burnout and exhaustion and to do something about it. And I don't think that would have happened without the pandemic. I think it would have been a slow slog to try to do this. I mean, everything I've done in my career, I felt like I had to get up every day and put on a Kevlar vest because of the arrows in my backside, talking about the patient experience before it mattered and before the government mandated, we measure it and publicly report it and tie reimbursement to it. I think now leaders are having the courage to do things and do it faster. And then that will drive, you know, the government and, and payers around reimbursement and metrics around things that truly matter. Well, that's encouraging to hear. And I want you to be 100% correct in that optimism. <laughs> I really, really do. I want to turn a little bit more to being an entrepreneur. It's one thing to have great ideas and a lot of passion for what you're working on, which clearly comes through, Bridget, just hearing you talk about the work um, that you do. But the studies and statistics, they're not favorable for women as entrepreneurs for getting funding you know, for successful companies. 
it's happening, but certainly not at the rates that we uh, we might want for gender equity. So I'm curious, just having been an entrepreneur, being an entrepreneur, having had companies funded and then um, obviously selling them as you've done, what did you see along the way? Were you the only woman in the room? Were you a one of one or did you have barriers that you had to overcome? What has been your experience along the way? Uh, very much so, although I think it is changing, but it's not changing fast enough. And there are a few things I would have done differently had I known or had support from other female mentors. I think healthcare and healthcare technology companies are still grossly underrepresented by women. And it often starts with the venture world where they're mostly men and little diversity in, in those organizations. However, now there are several that are being founded and led by women. So women venture back firms, so women finding women. So I think there are better ways to network, to get access to the resources that you need. I didn't get any coaching on how to aspire to key leadership roles in organizations, nor coaching on how to seek board roles. And so I, I spoke at the breaking into the boardroom for Oxion a couple of years ago in New York when we could meet in person. And in seeking these roles and positions is a full-time job. And it takes specific tools on how to create a board-worthy resume, how to be present on social media through your, your LinkedIn and, and other channels, and to actually reach out and target organizations that are seeking women to be on boards or in key leadership roles in organizations. I think I just thought recruiters would call me and that's not how it works. You, you actually have to get coaching on how to put yourself out there and to reach out to others to try to advance in your career. Second, I have never cared about titles. I've always drafted my own job description, created my own title. You know, I think, you know, unfortunately, the hierarchy of medicine is that my credentials sometimes give me, you know, a position of authority, whether it's founded or not. But I unfortunately think often in HR that women are held back by titles for just the, their payroll reasons, which don't make any sense. And that when people look for women in leadership roles in companies or on boards, the title actually matters. So I think that's universally broken in this country and that we have to have women on a quicker path. I see more vice president, you know, male vice presidents in companies than I do female, few people of you know color or other diversity in these roles. So I still think we have a long way to go. States like California, you know, have mandated that any publicly traded board have women and people of diversity on the board. It's a shame that it came to that. So we've got a long way to go, but I think there are things individual women can do to try to advocate on their own behalf. Uh, and those are things that I didn't know early in my career. And how do you do that now? Because I agree with you that advocating for yourself, particularly when you don't necessarily have a network that's, uh, whether it's a mentor or a sponsor or whatever the term is, if you don't necessarily have that, advocating for yourself as a woman is important. So knowing your learned experience but and where you are today, do you still advocate for yourself based on that learning? And if so, how do you go about doing that? I think you have to, I mean, and if, especially as a young woman changing careers, you know, it's antiquated things like going to the new job, they ask you what your salary was at the old place. Well, why is that relevant when you've grown from when you started there? So I think there are ways that you can catapult your career versus just staying on a plateau by having the courage to ask for things around the financial security that you need and deserve. I think there's ways to get coaching 
from there's really cool women in various recruitment firms that will work with you to draft your resume in a way that shows your skill set versus putting down what you did in high school. I mean, there's ways to really build a resume that tells your story in a really, really powerful way. And to be thoughtful around your career path so that when it lands on paper, it just shows the growth and the impact that you've had. You can never predict the path you're on. And as my father would say, if you want to make God laugh, tell her your three-year plan. But <laughs> if you can, you can be smart about the roles you choose so that your resume tells a story. And it's purposeful. So I think that your um, your comments there are very well said. In terms of your experience, Bridget, over the years, um, some things that women think about work-life balance. And you do a lot of things, both your profession, you serve on boards, you are on speaking engagements. Do you have work-life balance? Do you think it can be achieved? Absolutely not. It's <laughs> <laughs> No, um, it's it's great. It's aspirational. I try. I mean, it's it's one thing to have knowledge, and then it's one thing to turn it into action. So my books and my tapes on meditation, my morning calm on my Outlook calendar. So I try. You know, I I, I know it's important. The only thing you can control in your life is your calendar. So I work closely with my executive partner to really focus on the calendar, so that if I have space for the creative work that drives the innovation that I bring to Vocera. If I don't have that, then I can't bring that innovation, innovative spirit. When uh, I took a walking tour in Ireland with David White, when John O'Donohue was still alive, and he said something that has stuck with me forever, as he had us walk through the sacred ground, he said, ask the question, what is it to your higher power? What is it that you most want me to do with my life? And he said, you can't find the answer to that unless you have stillness, solitude, a quiet and a connection to nature. And so I think it's just carving out um, space to protect that if you can, but it certainly has been hard with the pandemic. Yeah, and I, I really like that quote. So you don't fully practice what you preach, but you're working on it is what I heard in those comments, Bridget. This has been a terrific conversation. I've really enjoyed it. As we close out here on Inspiring Women, any last advice you wanna leave with listeners? Well, one mentor coach of mine said to me, use your voice and speak up in the room. And one of my greatest fears in my life next to snakes is the fear of public speaking. And I think for women, your voice and your executive presence and the energy you bring to a room makes a difference in the impact you can have and that the growth that you have. So my advice is figure out how to use your voice get coaching around public speaking. If you have fear of that, see somebody and get on beta blockers early in your career, but, but use your voice to do good in the world. That is fantastic. This has been an excellent, inspiring women conversation with Dr. Bridget Duffy and Dr. Duffy. Thank you so much. Thank you. This has been an episode of Inspiring Women with Lori McGraw. Please subscribe, rate, and review. We are produced by Kate Cruz at Executive Podcast Solutions. More episodes can be found on inspiringwomen.show. I am Lori McGraw, and thank you for listening.